So tonight we are beginning with how God is all-sufficient for himself and for us. That's our topic. Um, After a tiring week, probably a busy weekend too, you might be wondering, why have I come out tonight? (laughs) How is um, such an abstract-seeming topic going to help me? How am I going to stay awake through this evening? And if, if it does sound too abstract, the ways that God is not like us, Come with me to Isaiah 40. Uh, This is where we're going to begin. Isaiah 40, verses 28 to 31. Here God is in the middle of telling his his people, Israel, his discouraged, exiled people at this stage in their history, just how different he is to them and to the other so-called gods. And he's doing it not to put them down, but because he wants to renew their hope in him at a time where they're really flagging and to renew their trust in his promises. So let's see here why God's differentness, so to speak, gives us reason for hope. Isaiah 40, 28-31 Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So did you spot, first of all, in verse 28, that God is the everlasting creator of the ends of the earth? That makes him fundamentally different to us. And just one of those many differences is that he cannot grow tired or weary. God has unlimited, unending resources, if you like. The Duracell bunny grows tired, the best foam batteries die after just a few days, even when they're new. As far as I'm aware, all attempts at perpetual motion machines eventually grind to a halt. But God, our God, never runs out of steam. And that means he can renew our strength from his infinite supply. He can renew our strength to enable us to drink deeply from his word this evening. He can renew our strength to keep us plodding faithfully through another week, even running when we have to. He can renew our strength for unexpected challenges, crises, and other opportunities for growth in faith and in Christ-likeness. And he does this mainly by supplying our physical needs, like good food and good sleep. These things ultimately come from him too, as he, he sustains creation, even if that's via farms and supermarkets and other secondary means. But God can also strengthen us in a more direct way, by more obviously 
supernatural boosts of his mighty power, if you like. You can go to sleep one night, not knowing how on earth you will face the next week, pray a desperate plea for help to him, and wake up the next morning strangely refreshed and ready to go. And he does that by the same power that sustains and upholds all existence through his Son and by his Spirit. And since his power is limitless, he can give strength out of all proportion, even to the best sleep or the best food, when we ask for it, and when he decides we need it. That's not to say he'll constantly give it to us, like some kind of spiritual red bull. We're not meant to live in constant defiance of our limitations as creatures with minimal rest and minimal sleep and skipping meals. As we'll see later, defiance like that probably means we are trying to be God ourselves instead of trusting him with that responsibility. God wants us to know and accept our limitations as creatures. So he commands us to take regular rests, for example. That's part of what the Sabbath is about. But there are times, perhaps like this evening, where it is right to try and do more than we normally feel that we can. And we do it in his strength so that he can show his power in our weakness to his glory and to our encouragement. So let's pray for that strength now, and then we'll dig, uh, we'll dig a little deeper into how God is all-sufficient for himself and for us. So let's pray again. Heavenly Father, as we, as we dig deeper into some big, big, almost incomprehensible things about you, things that go beyond our ability to understand, and as we are weary, possibly already confused, please help us. Please would you renew our strength, renew our brain power. And speak to us by your spirit that we would see more of your majesty and delight in you. Amen. Like I said earlier, um, what we're doing primarily in the talk bit is, is laying the foundations for understanding how God's not like us, and the, the questions will be more application-focused. If this bit feels a bit abstract, don't worry, the concrete stuff is coming. But I hope even what we now say about God's self-sufficiency is going to help us be amazed at him. So let's, let's keep going. How is God all sufficient for himself and us? And how is it that he never grows tired or weary? Well, firstly, it's because he alone in all the universe and beyond is uncreated. Everything around us has a beginning, even angels, even space and time. Everything around us also has a cause. 
from the Big Bang to the cups of tea that some of you have poured yourselves since you arrived. Something else triggered it or brought it into existence. But God was not caused or created by anyone or anything. So he never began to be. As Isaiah 40.28 says, he alone in all existence is everlasting. So there are no limits on his being. So at one level, that is why he never grows tired or weary. But we can say more than that. It's not just that God has no beginning and no cause. He's also the ultimate cause of all other existence. That's what Genesis 1 verse 1 means when it says, In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. Heaven and earth represented the the full extent of creation to the ancient Israelite mind. So God was saying to them and to us, there is not one square millimetre of this universe or any other realm in existence that he did not create. He created everything. And he didn't create it out of some pre-existing matter either. It's, it, it's not as if there was something else alongside God floating around in eternity and he then decided to shape it into the world that we now see. Hebrews 11 verse 3 says that by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So creation wasn't made out of anything visible, solid, liquid, gas, or any other pre-existing substance. It was formed by something invisible, by God's command, his word. He created everything by his word, out of nothing. So that means God alone is uncreated and eternal. Everything else owes its existence entirely to God. If, if, if I had a, a, a blackboard, which I don't, I would draw a big line down the middle of it. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? <laughs> On the one side of the, this big line would be everything that is created. And on the other side would be one thing that is uncreated. That would be God. There there are two types of existence, if you like, and a big dividing line between them. There is uncreated and created. And only God is on the uncreated side of the line. Which means he's utterly unique in his very being. He exists in a way that is utterly unlike the way you or I exist. Is that how you think of God? Is the God that you worship that awesome? God alone is on the uncreated side of existence. And that is good news for us, because it means that God does not depend on creation for his existence. 
Creation depends on him, but he does not depend on it. He is self-existent, we could say. As Jesus says in John 5, verse 26, As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Now, we'll come on to the Son later and in session two, but you see for now that the Father has life in himself, which means that he doesn't depend on anything else for life. He's not like us, depending on oxygen and food and water and warmth. God has everything he needs internally, if you like. He's self-existent. He relies entirely on his own resources. And that is why he depends on nothing and no one else to depend to be who he is. And that is good news because it makes God free to give endlessly to his creation. Because he's never depleted by his giving and he never needs anything in return. God is free to be endlessly generous, if you like. Again, is, is that how you think of God? As someone who is endlessly generous, endlessly giving out to us. Doesn't that make him a truly beautiful God? Worthy of adoration. That he's, he is so defined as generous. Now think what all this means. Even when we think we are doing something for God, when we think we're giving something back to him, he is still doing everything for us. He's still upholding every atom of our bodies and the creation around us in its place. So, for example, when we sing praises to him, and we think we're doing something for his benefit, he, ultimately, is the only reason that we can sort of expand our, our rib cages, fill our air, our, our lungs with life-giving air. He's the only reason that we can comprehend words of worship in our minds. He is the only reason we can exhale and create vibrations with our vocal folds and shape meaningful sounds with our mouths and our tongues. And so he is the only reason we can speak or sing of our love for him. Our worship has added nothing to God. Our worship depends in every way on God. And yet he freely and willingly gives us everything we need for it. So to sum up where we've got to so far, God is uncreated, everlasting, and self-sufficient. Uncreated, everlasting, self-sufficient. And that is why he is all-sufficient for himself and for us. That is why he can renew our strength from his infinite supply and give us anything else we happen to need. And he does it freely and gladly because he is overwhelmingly generous. But to my mind at least, this raises quite an important question. If he is so self-existent, if he is so self-sufficient, why did he bother creating anything at all? 
He doesn't need us, so why are we here? Well, this is where the Trinity comes in. If you flick to Colossians chapter 1 for a moment, we're going to look at verses 15 to 16. So Colossians 1, verses 15 to 16. And there we see that God gives life to creation as a trinity. So in Colossians 1, 15-16, Paul writes, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That is, Jesus has the inheritance rights of a firstborn Son over creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So, all creation was made at the Father's command but through the Son and for the Son. And more than that, it is the Son who upholds creation. In him all things hold together, it says. And so it's through the Son that all creation continues to exist from moment to moment. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 makes a similar point when it says that the Son sustains all things by his powerful word. And again, think what this means. It means that we and all creation are, if you like, a gift from God the Father to God the Son. And the Father gives creation to his Son so that in all things, and here I'm skipping on to Colossians 1 verse 18, so that in all things Jesus may have the supremacy. So we are an expression of the Father's eternal love for his Son. But this isn't because the Son lacks glory. We, if we were to flick to John 17, we'd see in verses 5 and 24 that Jesus and his Father already enjoyed glory before creation began. So why does the Father command and then give creation to his son? It is because he delights in his son. A bit like a, a new dad who is so delighted in his first child that he just wants to show everyone the photos on his phone. Like, look at how cute he is. I'm so proud of my boy. Or something like that. In a, a similar way, perhaps not exactly the same way, God the Father wants his son's glory and beauty to be seen and to be enjoyed more widely because he delights in him. So he has made us to see and enjoy the son's glory. Isn't that a privilege? As an aside, um, I think this is really important for the way we think about God's glory. When we talk about God's glory, it can sometimes sound a bit like he's an egomaniac who needs our adoration, otherwise he'll throw a hissy fit. 
But creation is not a factory for God's glory. Creation can't manufacture extra glory for God as if he didn't already have enough. He certainly deserves our praise and our honour and our obedience, but he doesn't need it. There is a difference. And we can't add anything to him. So instead, creation, if you like, is a theatre for God's glory, a showcase for it, where we simply get to marvel at his goodness. A bit like what Dan was saying a couple of Sundays ago about God's generosity. He could have made a really boring, utilitarian, monochrome creation, but he didn't, because it is a theatre for his glory. And to be more specific, creation is the theatre that God the Father willed to showcase the beauty and goodness of his Son for our delight. Again, isn't that an incredible privilege? God doesn't need creation, but he made it as a theatre for his Son's glory for our delight. And in all of this, the Holy Spirit is also crucial. He is constantly at work, opening our eyes and our hearts to see and experience and enjoy more and more of God's glory. We couldn't do it without him. By nature, our fallen, sinful, hard hearts are jealous of God's glory. We distrust his power and authority, we doubt his goodness, and we constantly try to steal God's glory for ourselves, to enjoy his good gifts in creation on our own terms, as rulers of our own lives. It's as if, to extend the theatre analogy, as if the audience has hijacked the theatre and is trying to steal the show. But the Spirit opens our eyes and changes our hearts so that we can begin to see the true beauty of God's character, especially as Jesus reveals it to us. And then we can begin to enjoy his glory in creation too. We can begin to enjoy it with thankfulness and wonder instead of distrust and jealousy and resentment. If you like, the the Spirit operates the spotlight in the theatre for God's glory. He shines the light so that we can see God's beauty clearly, especially as Jesus walks onto the stage. And the Spirit is only adequate for this task because he himself is fully God. He shares in the same glory as Father and Son. No lesser being would be up to the job. And so the Spirit's glory is seen in his gracious work of bringing us to the Son so that the Son can then show us the Father and the Spirit also brings Father and Son to us. Jesus says in John 14, 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. How do they make their home in us? Well, I, I can only assume it is by the Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, who Jesus is talking about just a few verses earlier in John 14. 
actually to sum up, creation is a totally free, generous gift from the Father to the Son so that we can enjoy him by the Spirit. And our self-existent and self-sufficient God does not need creation. It doesn't add anything to him. But he made it and he saves it from sin and destruction because of his overflowing love for his Son and his generosity to us. Now there are, I think, lots of applications from this. We're not going to do them all justice in a, in a few minutes tonight. Um, but we'll make a start discussing them around our tables and groups in just a moment. Let's have a few minutes for Q&A first. Um, I'm sure there are questions. I'm not sure I have been totally clear at every point. Um, yeah. Is there anything anyone wants to ask before we dig into the application? What do you say to someone who was asking, like, if creation and us are a gift from God, Father to the Son, why would you give him a gift that he then ends up needing to provide for? That sounds like a pretty terrible. <laughs> um, two things spring to mind. Um, firstly, the Father, as, as far as we can see in Scripture, never does anything in isolation from the Son and the Spirit. So when the Father kind of commands that there should be a creation in his sort of eternal counsels, and that is not without the Son and the Spirit being on board with it. I mean, if there is one God, God must have only one will, and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share that same will. So the Son is not re reluctant in any of this. And then secondly, um, I guess that you have to ask, how, how is the Son's glory and beauty seen most clearly? It's seen in the cross. It's seen when he lays down his life for us. That he would go to that extent to rescue us. Um, and again, he's not, he's not unwilling in that. Um, there are lots of passages, aren't there, where we see his willingness. Like John 10, where he says... Um, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord and, and take it up again. Um, so this, yes, it might seem like a bizarre gift, a, an awful one in some ways, but it's one that the Son willingly embraces and accepts. And it's through that suffering and death that we see his love most clearly. Um, yeah. More questions or thoughts off the back of that? From Isaiah, on the theory, but also we see a evidence of Jesus as fully God and fully man, a heap theory. So I suppose if Isaiah is referring to God the Father, wouldn't he not be weary or 
Jesus now will throw in that grace room, but when he's on the earth, do get weary. Um, so, I take it in Isaiah when it's talking about the Lord, capital letters, Yahweh. Yeah. Um, that is referring to God as Trinity, so that includes the Son. We see in um, places like Philippians 2 that the Son receives the name above all names, and the Lord, and the sort of Greek version of the Hebrew, I won't go into detail on that. Um, So Isaiah is talking about the Son as much as the Father in one sense, but the Son in his divine nature, and um, there there are places in Scripture where we have to sort of parse out, if you like, separate out, is this referring to the Son in his divine nature, or is it referring to him in his human nature? Um, and when it talks about him getting weary, or hungry, or thirsty, it must be talking about him in his human nature. But it, it's actually it's really important that he does get hungry, and thirsty, and, and weary, because if, in becoming human, he sort of, if he cheated, if you like, if he shortcutted his human nature so that he was never hungry or thirsty like we are, never experienced the, the temptation that comes with that, he wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have done what Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 says he did. He wouldn't have become fully human-like in every way. And he wouldn't have learned perfect obedience in every situation. And so he wouldn't be the perfectly righteous saviour. Um, either to die for our sins or to sort of clothe us in his righteousness. Um, So, yeah. When it talks about Jesus being weary, that's in his human nature. And that's a good thing, because he's being like us so that he can save us. Um, And interestingly, for so much of his ministry, he depends on the Holy Spirit to empower him, just as we have to, rather than directly on his divine nature, which is like really weird and hard to get your head around. I, I, I struggle with it, especially given he is one person. It's not like the, these two natures of Jesus are sort of separate persons who have only a little bit to do with each other. He's one person with two natures. I don't get how all of this works, but it's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think you always get pushed in paradoxical language, I think. I just think of how that works with God's self-sufficiency. Like the Son is as God, so self-sufficient, has all of, that that He can take on human nature with its weariness and its hunger and its thirst and its death, and really take on and really do it. And He can He can do it and give Himself to that without like I don't know when we give ourselves to anybody, we're always hedging around a bit, aren't we? Like. You've got to keep fifty yourself back. You've got to be a bit wise in how you. And you've got limited resources, so you can really sort of empty yourself in the Philippians 3 says, mm. without losing yourself or risk your things. Yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that. But it's like, it's like Christ is sitting down by the well, being is unwearyingly wearied at that time from the Holy Spirit. We're really pushing at the limits of our understanding, aren't we? Uh, it's, it's, it's beyond us. But there is enough that we can say, I, I hope, 
that it should be really comforting and encouraging and affirming. Um, yeah, any more thoughts, questions? Okay. Let's go into our groups, work through um, the questions on the sheets, or as, as far as you get any time. Um, but I'm, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop us um, five minutes early so that we have time to pray about this. Um, I think it'd be really helpful to just, yeah, reflect for a moment and pray some of it in and just give thanks to God for what we've seen of him this evening.